0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the DieCast Movie Podcast. This is Steve Turk. And um, today, instead of doing a movie review or an interview, we're going to be doing something new called the discussions of different t- aspects of movies. Um, today, we're going to focus on the law, but in future episodes, we're hoping to do things maybe on music, directors and their work, that kind of stuff, independent films and so on. And I'm joined today by um, David Freiheit, who is also known as Viva Fry, a YouTuber whose YouTube show, he does things that he calls vlogs, which are videos about topics in the law. And um, you can follow him on YouTube. He also has another channel, uh, Viva Family, where he um, has different videos of him and his family. Some of them are about cooking. Some are about fishing. Some of them are really cute little things with squirrels getting his GoPro and running around on the trees. I mean, all kind of funny stuff. Uh, but today we're going to be focusing on law. How are you doing today, David?
1: Very good, myself, Steve.
0: One thing I want to ask you before we get started talking about the movie, David, is um, wh- what is one of your favorite movies? It doesn't have to be your favorite favorite, but like what's one of your favorites? It doesn't even have to be a law movie.
1: Oh uh, well, if it, it were my, my favorite law movie would be a Civil Action, but my favorite movie of all time, rounded to five, Pulp Fiction, Train Spotting. Reservoir Dogs, Raging Bull,
0: Dumb and Dumber, Happy Gilmore. That, that is an eclectic grouping. <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm sure I'm missing another one in there. Did I say True Romance? I said True Romance, right? I think you did. Yeah. I, I, when I was in high school, I watched True Romance every day for about a year. I mean, literally every day I watched the first half while I was eating breakfast, second half when I came home one
0: of the, one of the greatest movies ever. I know. The thing is, is that's what I like about, um, I don't know if you've ever listened to our podcast, but we roll a different die to decide the genres because there's so many different movies out there. And obviously like from your picks, um, you have a diverse interest in different um, groups also. And I think that's the one fun thing about movies. You get a chance for a couple hours to let go of reality and go into a different world fantasy. Sometimes the movies we're watching are very realistic and talking about topical things, but a lot, most of them, thankfully are things you can just unwind with or enjoy like dumb and dumber.
1: Yep. Yep. And I, I just remember the other one fight club. One of the best movies ever made.
0: Uh, obviously you didn't watch the movie because we shouldn't be talking about fight club. Nope. Oh, that's <laughs> touche. I mean, that, that's the first rule. I can't, I'm just ashamed. <laughs> But one, just before we get started in the other movies also, one thing I found interesting in life, a lot of movies with lawyers depict the defense attorney as the hero. And I think the most, the, the, the best one most people think about is To Kill a Mockingbird with Gregory Peck, Atticus, Atticus Finch. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but when AFI did their top 100 characters that were considered like the like the, the, the best characters, like for good, he was number one, hero characters. He was the number one male hero, and um, I have
1: I saw that movie. But I mean, I saw that movie thirty years ago, and I remember strictly nothing about it except for virtually nothing. But um, but you know, the the defense attorneys typically uh, are the are the heroes because typically it's a, a wrongful accusation or whatever. Prosecution are always. I uh, not say the scoundrels, but I'm trying to think of movies where the prosecution was the hero. I can't think of one right now, but
0: well, uh, I know I can't think of but, a movie, but I know the law and order, the TV series, the prosecutors were always in the hero roles. And, um, yeah, but the reason I was bringing it up is I find it interesting. Like with the Perry Masons, the Madlocks, the Atticus Finches, how, um, and of course one of the movies we'll be talking about with inherit the wind with, um, Clarence Darrow, who was, of course, um, portrayed by Spencer Tracy, and the character's name is different in the movie. Um, but at the time he was living, and a lot of defense attorneys now at the time, they're living like Dershowitz um, and stuff like that, or sometimes they're loved and sometimes they're hated because of who they represent. And they and they, and they always, I think Robert Barnes is, a t- is an example of this. They represent the people that need to be represented. They don't pick and choose you know, to the people, they go to the ones that are in need of that help to give them that 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 defense. And I think it's interesting. I find that the public will vilify defense attorneys. But on the other hand, in the movies and TV shows, they love defense attorneys. And I think that's what I find interesting with public perception. Yeah, well, there's, there's everyone hates the attorney until they need one, and then
1: they want the most scornful attorney they can they can imagine. <laughs> I had a good discussion with Dershowitz about this uh, and he thoroughly convinced me that, um, you know, they even though they are to be, uh, they are often hated for representing certain people. They are uh, a, a needed asset in life and in society just to keep the balances in check.
0: And I agree. And I think that I just find it interesting with um, society, how, people look at it different ways and like, well, why, why would they, who would, who defend them? Why would they do this? And that's the person who needs probably the most defending is the one that the, the public doesn't want that way. Everything is fair and balanced in our judicial judicial system. And I think that's what we need as a society all the time for everything to work in a balanced manner. Mm-hmm. And it's, sometimes it holds true. Sometimes it doesn't. Now you've never seen either of these movies that we're about to talk about until I recently, had not, I
1: had not seen them until this until today and last week. I saw. I watched Inherit the Wind today, uh, and full disclosure, I watched it on YouTube at one and a half speed because I have a short attention span and I I don't have all the. Uh, I had a window of opportunity, and I found the, the movie was so slow. Actually, even at one and a half, it it felt like a normal movie, and I watched uh, the other one, The Twelve Angry Men, also on YouTube. Um, and it was these. Are, these are the First, you know, I haven't watched an adult movie in a long time because of the kids.
0: But uh, first movies I've watched in a long time, they were great. That's good. Now, did you now which um, in um, Twelve Angry Men did you watch? because so, I think oh, I saw you- the
1: I saw the nineteen fifty four version. It was a fifty minute movie, and then I watched as many of the clips from the nineteen fifty seven version as I could find, and then I read the plot on Wikipedia just to make sure that there was no major difference between the two which there wasn't. And I actually thought I had seen the right one at first, but was watching it at one and a half speed. But it was, uh, I I discovered that it was the 1954 version.
0: Yeah. And, um, and you're correct that the plot is pretty much the same. The the only thing you missed with the 57 version, which was the movie version, the 54 version was the TV version. Um, Same script writer for both. And actually there was a 19, I think 99 version with Jack Lemmon. Also. You know, but I mean, so I, that's the color version for those that are wondering. So the other two are black and white. Uh, the thing you missed, I think, the most, and I'll probably discuss this in another review when we do the review of the movie, is Sidney Lamette's directing. He actually makes this thing where all these guys are in a room. It seemed like an action type movie because the way he directed and the way the actors move, he does things a lot of things in one take, like that opening the opening scene when they all arrive. And there's one take. Well, so that's actually I read uh, one of the
1: other versions was all one take, but it, I mean it looked more like a play, which which Twelve Angry Men basically was, was not much of a, a movie in the sense that we know movies, but it was, it was much more of a play. That um, was interesting. I, and by the way, I should tell you, R- R- Robert just texted me and he's not going to be able to make it, and I'm going to have to. I, ho- I hope nothing serious has happened, but it's just going to be you and me, so we can get to the uh, we can get to the meat of the videos, the meat of the movies. Okay,
0: so obviously you enjoyed the movie um, 12 angry men or the, the 54 version and the other ones, the things I wanted to bring up with it, I think from a lawyer perspective is um, in looking at it in law, because obviously you're not usually in the jury room.
1: Uh, well, so full disclosure, I'm a civil uh, litigator in Quebec and we abolished civil matters tried by jury decades ago. So we do have criminal matters that are tried by jury. But I never, I've never dealt with a jury in my life. Um, but I mean, that being said, you know, I've I've had experience in law, and I've discussed with people who with Robert at length about jury trial. I'll tell you the interesting thing that I that I noticed about Twelve Angry Men is that my my first reaction, and it was a reaction that a lot of people had, is that what they raised in that movie was actually in law not a reasonable doubt, but what we would call unreasonable doubt or any doubt whatsoever, because you know, the the plot itself and the explanations raised for how it could have been uh, in law, as far as I'm concerned and as far as I understand, would not be considered to be reasonable doubt. And if they were to be considered reasonable doubt, you'd never convict anybody ever because, you know, it, the, the plot in 12 Angry Men that it's a stabbing of a father, kid is suspected, eyewitnesses, one across the street. Uh, there was one a neighbor who heard him say, I'm going to kill you. The son bought the weapon but it says it fell out of his pocket and lo and behold, his father was stabbed with the exact same type of knife. Uh, you know, the, the, the doubt that the lone jury member raised from the beginning sent uh, to stretch the realm of credibility in my legal assessment. I under, I appreciate everything about the movie and what they're trying to get at in terms of, uh, in terms of a uh, plot, a story, a point, but everything about that was, uh, stretching of reasonable doubt beyond what I think would be the legal standard,
0: yeah, and that and the jury you're talking about is juror number eight, and that I find that interesting with the movie because they never give their names until well, in the in, in the later two movies, this um the '57 movie and the 1999 one, at the end of the movie, the old man or jury number nine and juror number eight actually exchange their last names, and the ends and the movie ends mm-hmm. there. So you hear their you get to hear their last name, but really it's. All movie long, they're just referred to by their number, or and or their occupation, or something like that. And Yeah. It, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, no, you can go ahead. So I was going to say the the, the
1: I, I understand the entire point of the movie, and it was sort of I, I want to say cliched. It was stereotyped, uh, almost cartoonish transition of convincing one jury member after another, but. It, it, it's interesting from a from a law based perspective. Typically, if you have one holdout, they're not going to convince the other eleven who voted uh, guilty. And the way in which it, it, they transitioned was cliched—the way you would expect it to be in a cartoonish type movie. And the reason for the lone holdout of the uh, who was who, who was you know thinking he was guilty. Was because he had something of a troubled relationship with his own son. I mean, it was all uh, you know, cliched type stuff. Maybe now, maybe it was original at the time, but that's the way I was looking at it now. It's, it was the, the reasonable doubt was not a reasonable doubt. It was any doubt, which is not the legal standard, and the, the cliched reason for why the one holdout who you know crumbled at the end and said not guilty was because he had a bad relationship with his son, and this was his way of getting back at him. I mean. It was interesting, but it's uh, I, what I would like to know is how the movie was received at the time, which is not something everyone can ever know now, especially not not somebody who wasn't even born at the time.
0: Well, in nineteen um, the fifty four version, the TV version was received very well, and, um, and and it did extremely well, and that's why they did the movie version. The movie version did not succeed in the box office at the time it came out, but it has okay. grown in its reputation and is considered, I think. If I remember correctly, Rotten Tomatoes has it as an 89% currently, you know, or, or the last time I looked. So it, it's considered one of the better movies of its type. And I think it's because the acting in the, the 57 version, you have Henry Fonda, Lee J Cobb. A lot of these people are named, I'm not sure because you're younger than I am, um, that you're not going to be as familiar with. And, well, I know,
1: I know Peter Fonda, I think that Henry Fonda was Peter Fonda's dad. Correct. Okay. So I don't know. I don't know the doubt. I know, I know Peter Fonda from uh easy rider. And what else was he? On? I think I only know him from easy rider. Actually. He was in ghost rider too.
0: He played the devil. Okay. I okay. I don't think, I don't think I saw that one. <laughs> well, I was trying to get to somewhat current for you, you know, like something more like the last like 20, 30 years. Um, and that kind of thing. But see, I was weird when I saw these well, movies, don't, don't, I was eight or nine years old when I saw these movies on TV.
1: How old, did, how old are you now? Are you you've got to be 15 years older than me, so 56? I'm 52.
0: 52, okay. I'm a, I'm yeah, an so old Yeah, these, these were, I'm an old generation Xer. I'm I'm not a baby boomer, I'm a right. generation X in the old bracket.
1: And and I think I just squeezed into the baby to the Gen Xer because I was born in
0: 79. Yes, yes. The the the, the best generation currently. I'm, I'm sure Robert would say that if he was here, you know. <laughs> absolutely no
1: the 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 amazing thing was the version i saw i don't i think the version i saw was all one take and they had different camera angles i think i think i remember reading that afterwards um but from a technical perspective it's great from a perspective i have never been one to who likes any movie that could be a play um i don't like musicals and i don't like movies that are uh, i call i call them boring Because not that I need action and like Marvel type stuff, because that also bores me more than anything. But any movie that could be a play, I tend to tune out in. Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross, I sort of tuned out in. Trying to think of another one, but um, this you know it 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 was interesting, and I knew that I was doing homework for an upcoming podcast. But uh, I I appreciate the movie, I appreciate the idea, and I appreciate the way it it sensitizes people who don't have experience with law to what might be like in a courtroom, in a jury room. I've never been in it, but I think that this was cliched and exaggerated to the point of lacking credibility, but I appreciate everything they were trying to do in the movie.
0: Now it's a 54 version. It could not have been one take because they broke for commercials. It was a televised thing and it was done live. So there was, I knew they had to, and there's, there's things that they moved around, but yeah, there was a lot of times to use a couple set of cameras. Um, okay, cool. But The thing I wanted to bring up, though, was about this is persuasion. Because as a lawyer, you're up there presenting your information, whether you're trying to persuade the judge, you're trying to read different people, especially if you're cross examining a witness and that kind of stuff. And in this movie, I think what a lot of people love about it is not as much the law, about how this one person is able to read the group and use the power of debate to get those people to. In a sense, he persuades them to change their mind, and and I, when you brought up about how a lot of people like you thought he was, you know, it would never happen. There's a lot of people that have brought that up before. There is a movement that says this: this they he, they'd let a guilty person go free, and that was actually one of the things. One of the jurors even says to him in the 57 version in the restroom, him and juror number seven. No, six. Journal number six. They were talking in the restroom and the guy was saying to him, well, just suppose this, suppose that. And he goes, oh, I'm a working man. I don't suppose anything. I let my boss do all the supposing for me. But if I was to suppose something, suppose this. Suppose you talk all, out, all of us out of this and he ends up being guilty and walks away. And and you see Henry find his mouth just like, oh yeah, what if, you
1: know. Well, you know, there, there's the old, it's, it's another cliche principle of law, which is it's better to, let nine guilty people go free, then convict, wrongly convict one innocent person. I mean, I, and I, you, you, I appreciate it. And, but you know, again, it comes to the, the level of the evidence that you have for the case and what you feel comfortable convicting on. Uh, in, in this, a lot of the what ifs and what ifs were, were merely hypothetical. I mean, the idea that the kid bought the knife and then lost it because it fell out of a hole in his pocket, and that's his defense not having had the knife that he, you know, stabbed in the guy's back. That that la- i mean—that sounds like the excuse that, that a murderer would give. Like, oh, it fell out of a hole in my pocket. I don't know how it ended up in his back. And uh, the other—what was the other argument? That it was a switchblade. And how would you ordinarily stab someone with a switchblade? I mean, th- that's like these are the hypothetical what ifs that lack credibility in terms of an actual persuasive, you know, persuasion factor. But and then that's the other thing, like. From a persuasion factor, the movie doesn't reflect what it means to be a lawyer persuading a judge because it, it doesn't work like it does in the movies and doesn't work as cliched as we saw in this movie. You know, it's, a, it's a nuanced thing. It has to be grounded in evidence. It has to be well presented, logical, and it's not a simple thing, well, what if and what if and what if. Uh, so you know, from that perspective, this movie will give you no practical training as to becoming a lawyer or even a jury member it is just a fun exercise um, to to sensitize people to what could go on in the jury uh, room. I, you know, I have no doubt nothing like this went on in the Derek Chauvin jury room because ten hours of deliberations after a three week trial, including lunch, I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion they may they knew what they were going in five minutes and then they just waited, uh, you know, some hours to give the semblance of credibility to the decision. But um, you know, it's always, it's always fun to imagine what goes on in a jury room.
0: Oh, I know, and you always wonder. And I've never been in a jury. I mean, I've been called to jury duty, but I've never been picked for anything. I never even got it out of yeah. the, the out of the like the queue waiting to see if you're going to get called out,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and that kind of thing. So I've never gotten farther than that. Um, one one thing I want—I don't know if you noticed it. you said you watched the clip, did you watch the clips where they did the first vote for the 1957 movie?
1: Yep, and they had it was 11 to 1, and then they did a – I know, but the uh, thing I wanted to bring up –
0: now, I don't know if you noticed this. When they first – they did that vote by raising their hands. And when they – you know, um, nine of the guys put their hands up – eight of the guys put their hands up right away. And then the other ones slowly put their hands up when they saw the other people were putting their hands up, except for juror number eight. And I wondered – I've always wondered, like, if it would have been a closed – ballot, you know, secret ballot, you know, would there have been more than just one holdout from that beginning? Cause it seemed like, a, like, the, like three of them just did not throw their hands up right away. They kind of eased it up. This is an interesting thing. Again,
1: not from personal experience cause I've never had any, but from professional discussions with other lawyers that I've done live streams with, they typically say that if there's four holdouts, the holdouts are going to get pushed over uh, in terms of by the, in terms of the other eight. And so I, I can easily imagine. Yeah, if the, those who will be reluctant to express their opinions, they'll, they'll do it reluctantly. But uh, over time, if there's if it's eight to four, nine to three, from what I understand, the nine to three end up convincing the other three. Uh, and you know, it, it takes one angry man to actually defy the other eleven. But I don't, you know, I I, I don't know that I've ever. I can't think of a case that I've heard. Where there was one holdout who either convinced the other eleven or was the one holdout for a hung jury, but I'm sure it, I'm sure the hung jury part has to have happened somewhere. But well, the reason I was, don't want to be that one person.
0: The reason I was bringing it up was not because of that aspect that you brought up was that the peer pressure aspect, like looking. What I'm trying to say is that the movie, if you take away and look at it as an as an idea with debate and everything, but it's also the peer pressure where oh well, everybody else is voting this way, I also will vote this way. You know, with those three, you know, because it's like. You, you give in to well, the group. I'm not talking about like taking out the context of guilt or anything. I'm just talking about overall in that scope. I just, I just find it interesting.
1: Well, there's, there's, undoubtedly, there's call it peer pressure, but also there's the, there's the fatigue factor. Um, and again, I, you know, I, I know this from discussion is that when there's a, when there's a holdout, when it's four to eight or three to nine, and you end up fighting sometimes for an extended period of time, there is a fatigue factor where at some point someone just says, I want to go home. So uh, I, I'll give in and you know, go yeah, fine, convict. But um, no, but it, yeah, it, I, I, I mean, I, I, watching the movie, it was it was novel for me because I've never I've never done jury work. Um, but it was it implausible uh, from a realistic from a perspective of realism, but nonetheless an interesting an interesting movie to watch.
0: Yeah, and when I, just to finish off, I was just with that move with the movie. I was I was talking about what that was not in the aspect of them trying to be persuading in the jury. I was just talking about. If you had twelve people out in a group and and you know and one and eight of them voted were saying we're going to do this, you always have those people that will sometimes be like oh, the other eight are saying let's do this and they go in with the majority, even though they might not want to go that way. And I was just looking at that as the the peer pressure aspect, not as it relating to the jury itself, but as to overall mm-hmm. in life. Now inherit the wind. Which version did you watch? Did you watch the nineteen sixty version or did you watch the uh, later version?
1: I think it was, I know it was the 60s version. It was with uh, Spencer, what's his name? Spencer Tracy. Spencer Tracy. Now, I don't know who he is. All I know is that from that movie, he looks like a genuinely nice person and he looks like a genuinely good actor. The other people in the movie, I found the acting was a little exaggerated. Uh, The the, the teacher who was accused reminded me a little too much of Jim Carrey. Uh, The... Other guy, the prosecution, I forget what his name was. I found him to be something of an overactor, and he reminded me of Gargamel from the Smurfs. And the judge, the judge reminded me of somebody, it might come to me, but I also found the judge to be something of an overactor. Spencer Tracy was great. And uh, no, the, the movie was great. Th- this is an interesting movie because I'm watching this movie now, knowing the current uh, discussion of the attack on religion, and you can see it. You know, starting this movie was 1960. Uh, I appreciate it was a not a, what's the word a metaphor, an allegory for McCarthyism. Uh, you know, I, I can appreciate it, but even in the movie where you see now where the war on religion has gone, or what people perceive the war on religion to have gone to, and it, when you when you now look at a, a movie back in the day, it, it gives some context to where we are based on where things were back then. Uh, but it, it was it was another interesting movie. I've done courtroom work and a lot of it. Nothing in that courtroom uh, depiction uh, was anything close to a reality that I've ever seen. Uh, it was it was exaggerated uh, and it was informal or at least procedurally incorrect. And I think this is not a jurisdictional thing. I think there was not a semblance of accuracy as to how a courtroom is conducted, but maybe I don't know better about 1920s uh, Tennessee. But uh, the story storyline was interesting. Arguments for fun, but again, another movie that is extremely cliched right up until the end, where you know you find out that the atheist guy is not quite so atheist, and uh, you know, and the and his his opponent dropping dead in the courtroom I, again, cliched. But maybe just because movies back then are cliched by today's standards, but it was a fun it was a fun watch.
0: And for, and for listeners that want to get um, more in detail about the movie, this is actually our very first episode is episode one. where we do inherit the wind. we reviewed a whole movie and we had um, Joshua Kennedy, one of the filmmakers join us. And we discussed that movie cool. in pretty good detail. And my son who's 19 at the time, he rolled the die and actually won the pick and picked inherit the wind, you know, as the movie for us to review for that first episode. So it's, it's kind of interesting. No, it's a,
1: no, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a cool I movie. Mean, it's a cool movie. It's funny. I mean, it's watching a black and white movie, but the, it, there's a feel to black and white movies, uh, a crispness of the image that that gives a, a, a distinct feeling. Um, and uh, it, it was, I guess, I watched the re what's the word remastered version because it was really it was like HD sharp.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's a very, I don't, you know, it's a very good movie and it, it was filmed by Stanley Kramer who also did *The judgment at Nuremberg. It's a mad, 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 mad world. um the fine ones and those kind of things in the late fifties mm-hmm. through the sixties. He did a lot of movies that were, um, challenging for people to, you know, they hit different things, race relations. He also did guess who's coming to dinner, um, and, and different things along Not. the way judgment in Nuremberg, of course dealt with the Nuremberg trials. And, um, this one deals, of course. As I'm, you fairly said. Certain saw, I'm fairly
1: sure I saw. Fairly sure I saw *Judgment of Nuremberg again. Like that's one of the movies that my that forced me to watch, and I would begrudgingly watch and make jokes, and you know, throughout the entire movie and not appreciate. Um no, but, but the, the, think about this one. again, watching this one, knowing the discussion on religion now, the, you know, the taking taking down Christmas trees, etc., and the, what was in this movie, religion waging war on on secularism, so to speak, or evolutionism. Uh, and you could see in this movie the way they were, you know, depicting religious people back in the 60s. And, and you know, in a sense, sort of mocking them, caricaturizing them uh, even back then. And it's like, you know, like Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat, but it tends to rhyme. And, you know, it's a similar theme that we see today, mocking uh, traditional Christian values, making them look like, I don't know which president it was, it said Bible thumpers. And so, I, you know, I'm watching it with this, with this uh, perspective and that aspect of the movie was interesting to watch the way they make ultra religious people look. Uh, but then from the legal perspective, knowing it's, it's an analogy of a movie, uh, you know, it, it is an interesting question about enforcing laws that restrict thought and that restrict speech and the slippery slope that that creates. And it's one that we are on in real time in full speed today.
0: Yeah. You and, know, in, in in the, when we did that review, that was one of the things that I brought up was that here's a movie that was filmed in 1960. That's so topical today. And that was two years ago, almost. And, you know, and here we are, it's, it's, only becoming even more um, topical um, with, with freedom of speech yeah. and things like that. But for those that are wondering inherit the wind was based on the state of Tennessee versus John C. Scopes, 1925. So that's why, um, if you were ever watched the movie, you wonder why it's filmed. It's set back then. It's actually based on a real trial. And a lot of the details in the movie are accurate. Um, there's there's things that they took leeway with, like all movies do. They try to generalize stuff. Like um, Scopes did not have a love interest, you know, so it's, there was no engagement, that kind of thing. But it was based on, in the state of Tennessee, they passed something called the Butler Act. I don't know, are you familiar with the Butler Act at all? Uh, refresh my memory. Cause I, I, I'll know when you tell me, but I don't, I don't know offhand. Yeah. The Butler act came out with John Butler. Um, I think it was John Butler and, um, he had put it into, he was a young represent house of representatives person for the state of Tennessee. And he put down about teaching of evolution would not be allowed in public schools in the state of Tennessee. And if they were to teach it, they could have a fine of a hundred dollars to $500. And it sat, it wasn't going to go anywhere until um, this one guy who used to be a baseball player, but was after he left baseball, um, he became a big evangelicist, going around, you know, talking about people. And the big thing was since World War One ended, evolution was the leading cause of all problems. They said evolution was the reason that there's um, child problems, that there's, Murder that there's this it actually caused World War One. Everything was evolution's problem, and that was the mindset of the, the push. Getting some feedback there for a second. Yeah, all right. But it was the mindset of the push was the evolution part, and um, so that was the mindset going in. They had a big thing in Tennessee where this guy showed up at two hundred thousand people show up for his like weekend or week long event. And then the politicians are like, wait, wait a minute. These are people that vote for us. And suddenly that puppy got passed through the house, through the Senate, went to the governor, Austin P who signed it. And then it went out to become law. The ACLU wanted to challenge said law. And we're looking for somebody in Tennessee. It was, they, they, they wrote a thing. They're looking for somebody in Tennessee, a teacher to challenge the law so they can help them out. Mm-hmm. Dayton, Tennessee is where it actually takes place. Not Hillsborough, like the movie does. And the, the town was having trouble. And this is the part where the movie actually talks about how the town people are happy about the, the finances coming in. The reason that, they went to John Scopes. John Scopes was a substitute teacher. He was, the, was the, the coach for football, baseball, basketball. He was the coach. And he substituted for two weeks prior to this. And they thought, the town, the town leaders got together. If we have the trial here, this could make us a lot of money. We'll have a lot of people come in. And so they went to Scopes and said, hey, do you mind if we charge you with this and arrest you for this? And he's like, sure, whatever. And then it went back to playing tennis. And that's, so they actually had his permission. Well, that's interesting. interesting. I mean, that aspect of the
1: movie where they're, they're talking about the money that this trial can bring and the the business. I mean, totally plausible. I didn't actually appreciate that it's based on a, on a, on a real uh, scenario because it's just, it's easy enough to believe on its own. Um, And it's funny though, the one thing that I did like was where they were talking about evolution and they were saying, you know, we, we didn't evolve from monkeys monkeys evolve from us. And this is what happens when you become a wicked person or whatever. You see a monkey smoking a cigarette. I, I had never heard, I had never even had that thought before. I mean, obviously I never even had that thought as a joke. And it's quite a funny joke to think of, uh, to, to, to claim that you believe in evolution, but you call it devolution or devolution. Yep. Uh, no, it was, that was, it was, that was a, a good, a good image and a good joke to retain. Um, but what else, I mean, what else was in that movie? The the repartee between the lawyers was, was, I mean, look, I I don't think I've ever seen that in court. You'd be held in, everyone would be held in contempt. Uh, I did like the the moment when uh, Spencer Tracy was held in contempt. His, that that monologue or that diatribe uh, was
0: good and impactful. And he was held in contempt. That was true, that he was held in contempt in real life.
2: permission to withdraw from this case. Mr. Drummond, you can't quit now. Why not? You were ready to do five minutes ago. Colonel Drummond, what reasons can you possibly have? Well, there are 200 of them. And if that's not enough, there's one more. I think my client has already been found guilty. Is Mr. Drummond saying that this expression of an honest emotion will in any way influence the court's impartial administration of the law. I say that you cannot administer a wicked law impartially. You can only destroy, you can only punish. And I warn you that a wicked law like cholera destroys everyone it touches, its upholders as well as its defiers. Colonel Drummond, can't you understand? That if you take a law like evolution and you make it a crime to teach it in the public schools, tomorrow you can make it a crime to teach it in the private schools. And tomorrow you may make it a crime to read about it. And soon you may ban books and newspapers. And then you may turn Catholic against Protestant. And Protestant against Protestant. And try to foist your own religion upon the mind of man. If you can do one, you can do the other. Because fanaticism and ignorance is forever busy and needs feeding. And soon, your honor, with banners flying and with drums beating, we'll be marching backward, backward, through the glorious ages of that 16th century, when bigots burned the man who dared bring enlightenment and intelligence to the human mind. I hope counsel does not mean to imply that this court is bigoted. Why, your honor has the right to hope. I have the right to do more than that. You have the power to do more than that. And I exercise that power. Colonel Drummond, I order you to show cause tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock why you should not be held in contempt of this court. And in the meanwhile, I order that you be held in custody of the bailiff. Bail is fixed at $2,000. That's
1: interesting. That's, 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 I, I, I didn't realize that so many parallels of the actual trial. It, I'm not so shocked that a lawyer is held in contempt. It happens, you know. It, typically, it, it happens not for righteous reasons. It happens for uh, deceitful reasons. But uh, no, it, it was it was it was a good monologue. It's you know everyone appreciates the message of the movie. The acting was fun, um, and uh, I'm trying. There was another scene that I did particularly like. Uh, Oh, well, the, the, yeah, the, the outdoor prayer scene w- was an interesting scene. But again, it's, I just think it's, it's cheap shots to make religious people always look like the fanatics and, and, and the lunatics. Uh, and I guess they were doing it as much then as people do it today.
0: Well, I try to look at it when nowadays and taking religion out of the picture is you have a lot of fanaticism going on with different things in society on on, on all different sides where people are always rallying to say this is the way it should be. And they're not listening to other people, other points of view, and trying to get to a fair assessment of what's going on. They're, like, they're closed-minded. And the Donna Anderson character who played the love interest was a prime example of that because her father was the preacher and he was the one doing all this stuff. And he kept saying, and she was the one saying to um, the Scopes character, to, at the, at the, you know, during the thing like oh it, it's the law you should follow the law just do what the law says this is what it says you shouldn't be doing this just just don't do this trial wow.
2: Bert Bert you've got to call the whole thing off now who are you young lady this is Rachel Brown we're engaged Brown? Reverend Brown's daughter? don't you see what's happening Bert they're using you as a weapon against your own people What you think or believe isn't the point anymore. You're helping something bad. Oh, now, young lady, it's not as simple as all that, good or bad, black or white, day or night. Do you know that at the top of the world, the twilight is six months long? Bert and I don't live on top of the world. We live in Hillsborough, and when the sun goes down, it's dark. And why do you have to come here to make it different? I didn't come here to make Hillsborough different. I came here to defend his right to be different, and that's the point. How about it, boy? I don't know what the point is anymore. I tried to open their kids' minds. Their kids, I tried to give them knowledge they could use. They're using it as a stranglehold on me. You're learning, Cates. Disillusionment is what little heroes are made of. Where do I finish? Dead with a paper medal on my chest. Bert Cates, world's biggest chump. He died fighting. Well, let's face it. To him, I'm a headline. To you, I'm a cause. And to yourself. All right, let's face it. Now, you chose to get into this by yourself. You didn't get into it because of his headline or because of my cause or maybe even because of their kids. You got into it because of yourself, because of something you believed in for yourself. I didn't believe it would happen this way. It can get worse. Those people are in a lean and hungry mood. They look at me as if I was a murderer. In <coughs> a well, way you are. You know, you, you kill one of their fairy tale notions, and they'll bring down the wrath of God, Brady, and the state legislature on you every time. You make a joke out of everything. Young lady, I know what Bert is going through. It's the loneliest feeling in the world. It's like walking down an empty street listening to your own footsteps. But all you have to do is to knock on any door and say, if you let me in, I'll live the way you want me to live and I'll think the way you want me to think and all the blinds will go up and all the doors will open and you'll never be lonely ever again. Now, it's up to you, Kate. You just say the word and we'll change the plea. And That is, of course, if you honestly believe that the law is right and you're wrong, Now, if that's the case, just tell me and I'll pack my bag and go back to Chicago where it's a nice, cool hundred in the shade. Bert, I've gone to my father's church every Sunday as long as I can remember. This is where I live. This is where my children will be born. What kind of a life could we have? Well, what kind of life could we have if I gave up now? Your father's kind, hallelujah and ignorance here we come. Rach, what goes on in this town is not necessarily the Christian religion every place else either. Rich, I can't live the way you want me to. You're the one who's got to decide. It's his church or our house. You can't live
0: in both. And at the end, she was the one who went to... Um, Henry... You know, Not Henry, um, the Brian house. You know, from... And uh, basically, you know, which would be Frederick Marsh's character, not the house, but the room he was staying in or whatever, and was talking mm-hmm. to his wife, who, by the way, do actually those two characters were married in real life, Florence Eldridge and Frederick oh, Marsh. <laughs> and um, I thought it was interesting. She's like, well, if, if, if what he did to me was evil, bad, then he must be an evil man. Because this one thing means everything he does is evil. And I loved what Florence Eldridge said was, it's, he's just a man. And, you, and everybody puts them on these pedestals only so you could take them down. And I think that lineage is so appropriate to so many public figures where people hoist them up on these pedestals and then they're just waiting to get them. Oh, there's,
1: there's, no question about that, but also the idea – the current idea we call it cancel culture. of sorts, is that everyone is defined by either their best moments or their worst moments, or they're defined by their best moments until they're defined by their worst moments, uh, or they're just defined by one moment, as opposed to you know being regarded as fundamentally complex, uh, nuanced beings that we are, and you know do, do bad things, do good things, and should not be defined, you know by far should not be defined unless it's an extremely <laughs> extreme case. Should not be defined by any one thing that they've ever done. Um, but now you mentioned it, and you brought my the, one of the, the line I like the most is where when she's telling him to just drop it and agree to you know agree to what they're asking for, and and you know he says what so they can let me out of jail, but I can be imprisoned in my mind, uh, which is it's a good line, poetic, and the idea that you know w- when you agree to silence yourself, you've already sort of imprisoned yourself somewhere, just in a different type of prison with more mobility. But a psychological prison, uh, you know, is just as real as a physical one, uh, to some extent. And it's and it's it's one in which a lot of people today live is either saying not saying or not doing things because they don't want to uh, they don't want to incur the wrath of the masses and end up you know living in their own sort of self created prisons, psychological prisons.
0: And I think that another example of that was. Clarence Darrow's character, Henry Drummond, which was Spencer Tracy, was the actor, brought up at that same time, oh yeah, you can, you can walk down the center, but just anytime you want to go in, just you can go, they'll let you in as long as you do what they say, think what they say, and so on. And it's just, that's why I think is so interesting about this movie. It is so current in that aspect. If you take the religion parts out and just substitute something else in, you know, that this movie holds true in those, in that approach. And that's what I think they were looking for when it came out in 1960, you know, cause then it was for different things at that time, you know, it was more about the thought freedom of thought. And I think that's what a lot of people have trouble doing nowadays. Um, regardless of what their point of view is, it's like one side or the other is just looking to go after them.
1: Sorry, I had to, to put you on mute cause my dogs are barking which might be the, which might be a cue. No, this for sure, the movie, and this is the thing about timeless movies, is there's a reason why they're timeless. They've tapped into principles that recur over and over again throughout, throughout humankind and uh, in one form or another. And so it's, you know, you can apply this story, mutatis mutandis, to any other, a number of other circumstances, but it definitely was and is uh, applicable now and potentially even more so where, you know, we're on the one hand laws that regulate the speech thought, and, and behavior. And you know, like once, once you, once you do that, where do you stop and where does, where does creativity and freedom of expression and freedom of thought go once you are forced into these confines and, and uh, we're, we're living it in real time, maybe on steroids and in fast motion these days.
0: And, and one of the things I thought was interesting, um, scopes the real life, the real life person was quoted when this law was passed and he was going through it. And he was like, it was quoted in one of the papers. And this is why he said he didn't want to teach it." He goes, once you introduce the power of the state telling you what you can and cannot do, you've become involved in propaganda. This is what his aspect was from teaching. You know, Mm -hmm. when he he looked at that part.
1: No, no question. And and you become, you become an agent of the state and, not always, it's not always a good thing. But once you are, on it, once you're unable to speak freely, uh, you end up you invariably get into situations where discourse itself and, and creativity and thought itself uh, becomes limited, and and either self censored or, or censored from the outside, and it, and it, it basically is this, it's marching backwards, not marching forwards.
0: Which which is actually some of the stuff that Spencer Tracy's character says. Henry Drummond's character says during the movie. You know, it's like we're going backward in time, back to the medieval days, and and so on. And, and when again, for those that have never seen this movie, you really should see the 1960 version. There's another version now of Kirk Douglas in the Frederick um, um, March role, like playing Frederick March, um, you know, playing the Byron, the um, William Jennings Bryan character and um, that kind of thing. So it's it it's a little bit different because um, it was a TV movie. But this one I think is the superior of the two. But like it, I know as you said, it does it's a over 2 hour movie, it's like 2 hours and 20 minutes. And there yeah, 2 2
1: hours and 8 minutes.
0: 2 hours and 8 minutes. Yes, yeah, so, and and I know for some people there's a pacing issue. I know um my daughter was the only one of the four of us when we did the review of the movie who did not enjoy the movie. Because she did not like the pacing and that kind of stuff. She enjoyed the humor brought by Gene Kelly, who was playing the HL mm-hmm. Mencken character. And um, of course, he had the, he had all the he had all the lines, he had all the little funny lines going in. But the the interesting thing is that Bryant was put on the stand by Darrow back in the real trial. And it was he was he was on there for 90 minutes or something like that as an expert about the Bible, that actually happened in real life.
1: That's amazing.
0: <laughs> and they did that outside because at the time it was, it was so hot. That one was held outside, not because they're going to have them. It just ended up being that way. And um, also he did not die at the end of the trial, but he did die. I think it was like um, six days or a week later, he ended up dying in Dayton, Tennessee. He went, he went and got a, check up, did some other stuff. And the doctor told him, you got to take it easy. He went back to date and wasn't going to take it easy and ended up passing away, um, <clears throat> passing away.
1: Oh, that's, I, that's, I mean, I, I get that's not, those are not details that I knew. It's, uh, I guess that makes less less of an exaggerated story. Some, some cre- artistic creativity or what is it? Uh, creative freedom. What is it? Artistic freedom. Oh, I forget the expression, but uh, not, not quite as
0: exaggerated as I thought it was based on the movie. Well, that, that's what I've I, I've always meant to like look into the details of it and to, to look at the back, back transcripts or back or read different literature. And when we were doing this, I went back and read the different books. And um, H.L. Mencken, who's the character that Gene Kelly was playing in the movie, he covered it for the Baltimore Sun. Of course, I live in Maryland, so Baltimore. And um, he was the one who t- coined the term Bible Belt. That was never used until after he did it. And, um, and things like that. And for those that want to like read the stuff that he wrote back then, it is collected in a book called a religious orgy in Tennessee. And it's all of his articles that he put out, you know, for the sun and everything about the trial. And uh, in real life, he actually left the trial on Friday and the trial ended on a Monday. Also Darrow did not want, once he found that they weren't going to all his witnesses, he changed they changed it. Um, Scopes plead to guilty. He asked the jury to say that to come back with a guilty verdict because he could take it to appeal, and um, so he did no closing arguments, which kept William Jennings Bryan from doing any closing arguments. And he, and he had this whole thing prepared, and because um, he wanted to screw with Jennings, Bryan, you know, screw with Bryan because they were about the evolution thing and and um, that kind of stuff. And it, it, when it went to appeal, it got thrown out it got no sorry it got appealed because of a technicality because the judge assigned a fine of $100 and in Tennessee law at the time the judge could not assign any fine greater than $50 and um, it was of course since the jury did not assign the $100 and he did they you know dismissed the case dismissed the fine and they said they weren't going to do any more with this bizarre case so it never ever got appealed and the law on the, not teaching evolution, did not get taken out, I think, until 1967. And that was due to the movie's publicity and some other laws being challenged in other states that this came from. So it, it, it's kind of interesting how this this whole case went about. But it's also the very first national, national-wide um, radio broadcast trial throughout the nation. There was never a trial broadcast across the nation until this one.
1: That's a, that, see, that's a, not knowing that, I thought, it was, I thought it was exaggerated to the point of lacking credibility to have a live broadcast from the, uh, from the trial and have the, the announcer, you know, the, the radio guy, uh, uh, describing what was happening and then going live to the courtroom. But uh, uh, that's, 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 I didn't realize it was quite
0: that historically accurate. Well, actually, the, the thing that was wrong with it, they only had him come for the last day. They did the whole trial on radio. Huh. <laughs>
1: That's fascinating.
0: That's very cool. Yeah. So, but I, that's, I just thought it was interesting when you compare those two and, um, it, with the historical aspect, but real quick, one thing I wanted to bring up to you with this, I always find this interesting with this analogy. And again, going back to current times, um, evolution, 19, early 1900s in, you know, was considered the evil of everything that was causing all the problems in the world. 1930s, movies. So they came out the Hayes Code because movies were causing all the juvenile delinquency and all the evils of the world. 1950s, comic books. Because Frederick Wartham came out, Seduction of the Innocents. And comic books was causing all the evils of children in the world. And, of course, rock and roll was in that same time period. Those were causing the evils. And then you go, you know, every time. Now it's video games, you know, and of course for a while it was Hard Rock, Dungeons and Dragons, whatever. You just fill in the blank every time. There's always something put in as this is what's causing all the evils of the world. And you can always leave it blank. And it's, it, it, it's I just find it how history keeps repeating itself. They just keep plugging, well, it can't be this. It must be this. And to me, the simple answer is it's not that those people that are predisposed to go to those issues are going to find something and they might say, oh, it was this or that. But it was... I just find it interesting how history keeps repeating itself. I don't know if you noticed that or not.
1: Well, no, I didn't notice it, but it, it, I mean, I've noticed the tendency, and now certainly people are running around saying social media is the evil that's going to cause everyone psychological damage, uh, self harm, and all these things. But yeah, there's there's no question. Either people are either predisposed to see the evils of the time, or there are in fact evils that that evolve, uh, you know, that evolve as much as evolution, and so. It's it's no longer uh, some are exaggerated, some are less exaggerated, but yeah, no, there's no, no question that uh, there will always be something that will fill the evil of the time, and it it is interesting to, to note what it was at any particular point in time.
0: And those are just a few, but I'm just I just find it funny how, uh, to me, it comes down to a lot about personal responsibility. If you have children, raising them, you know, people saying, "Oh, they're all well, you can control." So, especially when they're younger, you can control their access to a lot of these things. When they get to be teenagers, it gets to be a little more nuanced. But if you did, if you built that good foundation, you know, then they're less likely to go in those certain paths. So, well,
1: a good foundation and a good foundation and open dialogue, and as much as possible with your parents, is uh, is the, is the the healthiest thing out. There. And I that I, no I, I, I hear, uh, people in the house. Now I may have to run upstairs to tend to the children, but, um, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I, thank you not only for inviting me, but thank you for giving me a good excuse and a good opportunity to watch two movies that I can safely say I would have never watched in my entire life, but for the fact that I had a good reason to do it.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for joining me, David. And, um, hopefully next time if we can do this, Sometimes we can some... get Robert to join in with us and, um, get more of um because um, it'd be interesting to see if robert agrees with you with those same points of view
1: yeah, well say, uh, a diff- uh, extra perspectives from intelligent people are always
0: good <laughs> all right and for listeners um join us next episode when we'll be doing either a movie review um an interview or maybe even another discussion um you never know which way the die is going to roll